So something pretty cool um, is that Hannah and I actually went to ECU together. Um, and whenever we met each other, um, we were both RAs and we had some mutual friends that, um, I wasn't in Young Life, but she was. And um, we had some mutual friends that um, we knew and we ended up meeting each other. And, you know, honestly, whenever I met her, I never thought that we would be at this place where we're at now where she's coming and leading worship for us. And I haven't on the same night that I have to get up and preach. So that's just really cool. It's just um, God's providence and, and that's that whole thing. So Hannah, thank you so much for, for leading tonight. Um, so tonight we're going to continue through Jonah uh, chapter three, and we're going to go through verses one through 10. Uh, my name is JT Outlaw. I'm actually the uh, director of discipleship here at Restoration. And um, just to start out, um, this is going to reveal my age, um, so hopefully you don't get up and leave when you figure out how young I am. But uh, back in May of 1999, uh, pop culture was again redefined by George Lucas. And if you don't know who George Lucas is, he created Star Wars, okay? So in May of 1999, he was releasing the first film in a second trilogy that was actually going to be a prequel to the first trilogy that came out. And it's kind of as confusing as it sounds. But he's the reason that today we have cinematic timelines. He's the reason that the Marvel movies have been so successful and you have this continuing story amongst over 10 years of uh, storytelling through cinema. Um, he changed the way that we expect modern stories to be told. Whether you love it or you hate it, he changed it. Um, and if you had asked me when I was seven, <laughs> which was in 1999, <laughs> if I knew what a prequel was, um, I would have thought you were speaking gibberish. I, I would have had no idea what that word was. But as soon as George Le Lucas and his team announced that there was going to be a Star Wars prequel, I immediately understood. Um, this was going to provide the background to the stories that I absolutely loved. I'd understand where Ben Kenobi, Luke, Leia, Han Solo, and most importantly, for every seven-year-old, Darth Vader. I would understand where all of these characters came from. I would know the, the entire breadth of their story. And I would finally understand why there was a rebellion against the Empire. Um, I was so absolutely pumped about these movies. Um, and I was really hoping at the time that all my friends were wrong about Y2K, that we would get this first film, and that computers would exist in the next year so that we could continue this, this, uh, this story. Um, and Lucas, you know, people look at sci-fi, they look at Star Wars, and they just think it's pop culture. They think it's, it's kind of pointless. But Lucas really is a storytelling genius because he actually incorporates um, – some, some ancient literary storytelling techniques that a lot of people don't pick up on. Uh, some of those are concentric storytelling, where you have story built within story, and the way that it folds up, it folds out in the exact same way. Um, he has a lot of foreshadowing in his films. Um, in other terms, that I'm not really going to bore you with tonight, because that's not the point of, of, of my sermon, but um, I openly confess my nerddom to you tonight. Uh, because the excitement that I had for those sci-fi prequels when I was seven has absolutely been trumped by the spiritual prequel or the spiritual foreshadowing that we see in the book of Jonah. 
God, who is the greatest author, he uses those literary techniques that he created (laughs) to record an unbelievable historical event, all the while weaving in glimpses of the pinnacle of the main narrative. And I really hope that after tonight, after we go through these verses, that we would all be encouraged and convicted and amazed by the beauty of God's story and the foretaste of Christ that he provides in this Old Testament book. So let's pray, and then we'll jump in. Lord, we are just in absolute awe of, um, of who you are. Um, you are the great author. You're our creator. Um, All the other titles that the song that we just sang about you gives you, Lord, you are all those things and you're so much more. And um, Lord, we're just thankful that you have given us this story of redemption, that you've given us scripture, that we're able to look at your word and study your word and learn about who you are. Um, And as a result of that, we're able to learn who we are because our identity um, is dependent on you. Um, Thank you so much um, for the people in this room. Uh, Thank you for the time that you're um, allowing us to have tonight um, as we go through uh, your word. Um, I just pray that we're encouraged, that we're convicted, um, and that uh, you would make uh, yourself get all the glory um, through this sermon. Thank you for your son and his gospel, and we ask all of this in his name. Amen. Okay, so if you don't have your Bible with you, um, we're actually going to have the words up on the screen behind me. But if you do have your Bible, go ahead and open it up to Jonah. And we're actually going to start in uh, chapter 2, verse 10, and then carry on through chapter 3. So scripture says, starting in verse 10, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth and the gra- from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he, he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So right off the bat, 
we have this story starting over. Jonah is vomited ashore by the fish, and that's, that's pretty physical, right? Like, it's not that he's just spit up. He was vomited ashore by the fish. Um, what an entrance. And, uh, and then Jonah is given a second chance by God to be obedient. The language here is almost verbatim what we find in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The only changes that are made here in chapter 3 emphasize God's expectation for Jonah to obey. He's given him a second chance, and he's basically saying, okay, this is it. <laughs> this is your chance to obey. Instead of son of Amittai, which we see in verse 1, it says Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh. Here we have the, Lord of, the word of the Lord saying, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Right? And that, to me, it almost reads like a father who's threatening to count to three with a disobedient child. He gave Jonah the first time, and now he's saying, okay, Jonah, two. This is it. This is the second time. He also differs his instructions for Jonah on the second time around. The first time he said, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But this time around, God says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message I tell you. There's a change there that implies that Jonah probably isn't going to like this new message. But God is telling him that he demands obedience. No matter what the message is, is go and preach it. So Jonah obeyed, and we see that in the fact that it says, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. <laughs> and probably after being swallowed by a fish, you really don't want to argue with the guy who had you swallowed in the first place. Um, but Jonah obeyed, and he went to Nineveh. And Scripture, just to give you some background about Nineveh, Scripture calls it that great city, which is strange because typically we, we see in Scripture the great city would be Jerusalem. But here God himself is calling Nineveh, which is a, a pagan Gentile city. He's calling it that great city. Um, and while it may seem like that just might be what the culture referred to as Nineveh because it was just a large city or, or the size and the scope of this, this people that live there, um, we actually see that if you look in the Hebrew, and I try and steer away from it, but this was just amazing to me. Um, the Hebrew actually indicates that this city is exceedingly great to God. The Hebrew makes that emphasis. This city of, of pagan Gentiles is great to God, the God of the universe. We see this over and over and over in this book, that Nineveh is great. And this just shows that God is not limited to the walls of Jerusalem. He's not limited to the borders of Israel. The earth in its entirety is his creation. And all the inhabitants, the Ninevites, 
the Jews, other Gentiles, Romans, other people elsewhere, they are all his. But we also shouldn't dismiss that this city is exceedingly large, right? I mean, Scripture tells us that this city, it takes three days to walk the breadth of the city. And that's not saying to get from one side to the other. That's saying it would take three days for Jonah to walk throughout the entire city, hitting every single street, every single corner, preaching what God has commanded him to preach. It's going to take him three days. It's a big city. So Jonah begins this three-day walk through the city. And on the first day, we're told that the people hear and respond to his message on the very first day. And they didn't just respond to it and say, oh yeah, man, that's, that's probably something I need to think about. God's going to destroy our city. Okay, I'll keep that in mind. I've got 40 days to figure it out. The very first day. And they took up the ceremonial rites of mourning, which wasn't even theirs. That was the Jews. They took up these rites of mourning, dressing in sackcloth, covering themselves in ashes, and fasting. God used an incredibly short message, one that in the Hebrew is only five words. He used an incredibly short message to completely spark a revival that overtook the city in one day. And not just a revival anywhere, but in a pagan metropolis. God used that. The message even reached the king. And he went so far as to proclaim the city's need for repentance and a decree. And we see that this revival spread across socioeconomic boundaries. Right? From the lowest to the highest person in authority. Every single one of them repented and saw their need to repent. The entire city of Nineveh was in mourning over their sin and repenting of their rebellion. So up until this point, we most likely have been looking at Jonah as our example, right? You read the book of Jonah, it's easy. I mean, the the book's named after him. He seems to be the main character, right? So we look at Jonah and we're like, okay, I, I, can, I can relate to Jonah, my own disobedience towards God, not wanting God, not wanting to do what God wants me to do. But this passage right here, chapter 3, 1 through 10, this should immediately strike us at our very core. our first reaction should not be to compare ourselves to Jonah, but to the Ninevites when we read this passage. This right here is the high point of the entire book of Jonah. This is what everything's been leading up to. Jonah has been avoiding this very thing and now it's happening. This is the pinnacle of the book of Jonah. We're here. And when we read this, we should see ourselves in the Ninevites. 
we deserve God's wrath. Do we not? Every single one of us here, believer and unbeliever, man, woman, and child, we all deserve destruction for our sin. That is just our very nature. And when we reflect on our sin, do we mourn over it? Do we truly recognize our sin for what it is? Treason. Against the king of the universe. But don't discredit what else we see here with Jonah either. If you're a believer, we can also look at Jonah's message. It was five words in a single day. (laughs) God used so little to make so much. Five words. If we took that and boiled it down to five words, it would probably be something like, repent, you will be destroyed. (laughs) Right? Five words. We as believers, we have so much more than five words. We have the fullness of scripture and the gospel. And we still find excuses to not share the hope that we have in Christ. Do we hate our neighbors and our coworkers and the people that we come in contact with? Do we hate them so much that we can look and see how much Jonah hated the Ninevites and it's similar? Obviously, we want to respond to that question for a, with a no. I mean, I did whenever I was preparing for tonight. I looked at it and I said, no, of course I love my neighbors. I love Rick and Myra. I love our neighbors across the street. Like, I really, really love them. But if we really consider our actions and how we interact with them, what story do our actions tell? We have the keys to the kingdom in the gospel. So again, let me ask you, how much hatred are we harboring if we refuse to let our pride and our concern for our public image and what people might think about us if we take the time to share the gospel with them? If we let those things die so that others might live. Our hope at restoration is to see revival in Wilmington. We want to see God radically change our neighbors so that we might see our entire city redeemed. But we can't have that without prayer and action, right? It's really easy to pray for your neighbors and then not act on it or the other way around, to act on it, share the gospel with them, and then just never pray about it. 
it's not a either or, it's a both and. We should be doing both of these things consistently, constantly. Sinclair Ferguson, in his commentary on Jonah, he says, Revival is needed and we must pray for it. But evangelism is the divine command and we must be obedient to it. So I'm going to read that one more time. Revival is needed and we must pray for it. But evangelism is the divine command and we must be obedient to it. We have been entrusted with the gospel. If it has not if it has not affected us so greatly that we feel compelled to share it, then we truly have no message and no hope. Theologian John Owen puts it this way, that word can only come with power to our hearers when it has come with power to our own hearts. So let me say that again, but I'm going to take out word and use gospel instead. That gospel can only come with power to our hearers when it has come with power to our own hearts. The gospel has to affect our hearts. If we're believers, it should, right? It should stir in us a desire to tell other people about it because we're able to look at other people and recognize that we were just like them. We were walking the same exact path that they're walking. This passage should be really tough to swallow if we read it reflectively. It reveals our sin and it brings us low. And hopefully we respond like sackcloth and Ninevites who were calling out mightily to God. They saw their need for God. And how did they respond? By lowering themselves and crying out to the Lord. So, strangely enough, (laughs) all of that actually brings us here to the end of the passage. That basically covered the breadth of it, right? Jonah went, shared his message. Ninevites heard, repented. It was great. Not what Jonah wanted to happen, but it was great because God's great. So we're able to read the last two verses, verses 9 and 10, and we're able to read the king's hope and God's response to that hope. So let's look at 9 and 10 really quick. So the king says, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So... I just love it when Chris asks me to preach because 
always feel like he ends up giving me the passages where he's like, hey, I'm going to go out of town this week. You take care of that one. (laughs) Um, So let's just go ahead and let's get the theological elephant. Let's just shoo it out of the room, okay? God changed his mind. Like if you're if you're reformed, which I think most of us in here are, that's really hard to wrestle with, right? God changed his mind, but God's sovereign. God knows everything. And he does. You're right. But he relented, because that's what scripture says. And these two verses, they've proven to be a foil for many readers of this passage, much like the fish ends up being a stumbling block for people in the previous chapters. They want to spend way too much time focusing on the fish and they don't really spend any time focusing on anything else. Same thing here. People really want to focus on God changed his mind, God relented. Well, we're not going to spend a lot of time here. (laughs) Um, But I am going to do my best to explain how a perfect, all-knowing, unchanging God changed his mind. (laughs) Um, So... The first thing is we just need to go ahead and take, take into account the fact that we can't understand God fully, right? We can't understand God. We only understand what he wants us to understand. We only understand by what he gives us in scripture. So rather than trying to reinvent the wheel, um, one of the commentaries that I read, I agree with 100%. Um, and he can explain it much, much better than I can, so I'm just going to read you this quote. Um, Brian Estelle, in his commentary, he puts it this way, Um, and he's actually pulling off of John Calvin, so um, his commentary puts it this way. In John Calvin's terms, God talks to us in baby talk. As a mother stoops to talk to a child, So God speaks to us in such terms that we may grasp his truth. What God does when he speaks to us in his word is accommodate to our weakness. We are only able to understand the perspective of man because we are men and women. We cannot understand a being who is holy different from ourselves. But that's why we have Christ as our mediator. It's not our job to reconcile these two perspectives either. I honestly believe that this section, these two verses about God changing his mind, and then we we try and reconcile that with God's sovereign, all it should do is just cause us to take a step back and marvel at our God because he is so large and mysterious rather than being small and just like us. He's sovereign over all and he's all-knowing and yet somehow he wants us to understand that he did something like change his mind. Thank God for his grace and mercy. Thank God that he is bigger than our comprehension. We should rejoice in that. But we have to go back to these two verses and we have to look at the hope that we find in this section. 
The king is hopeful, but he's unsure. He's unsure of his hope. He starts his sentence with, who knows? (laughs) Who knows? Maybe God will do this. We're really, really banking on it. The actions of the Ninevites, they're uncertain. They do not know if God will relent, but they hope that he will, and they're trusting that he will. But ultimately, they're unsure. And this should immediately make us think of the certainty that we have in Christ. Jesus said it himself in Matthew when he was being asked for a sign by the Pharisees. Jesus said this to them in Matthew 12, 38 through 41. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is the great and better Jonah. Jesus is. The Ninevites had Jonah, and they repented and they believed. We have Christ, who is so much more than Jonah. Jesus is the greater and better prophet. The wavering hope that the Ninevites had is shored up in Jesus. Jonah, a Hebrew man, was swallowed and buried for three days in the belly of a fish, only to begrudgingly preach salvation to a Gentile people that he hated. Jesus, who was fully God and fully Hebrew man, died the death that we all deserve and was buried for th- and three days after rose from the dead so that a saving sermon may be preached to all people whom he loves, Gentiles and Jews alike. This is the prequel, <laughs> right? This is what we see in Jonah. This is the prequel that we should be excited about because we should be able to read the book of Jonah and see, man, Jonah is pointing us to Jesus. This was God's plan from the beginning. God's in control. We can see that God's ultimate plan for his people has been since Jonah and even before Jonah. The prequel that we have here provides clarity and an understanding of the overarching narrative of redemption. This should encourage us. So what what are we supposed to do with this good news? The good news that we have here, that Jesus is the better Jonah. 
So let's, let's listen again to the quote from John Owen. And hopefully this will help stir in us what we should do with this good news. That word, that gospel, can only come with power to our hearers when it has come with power to our own hearts. So if that message of ultimate redemption and unwavering hope has truly affected our hearts like it should, then we must share it. We should want to share it. We should be compelled to share the gospel because it's changed us. God has saved us using the gospel. And why wouldn't we share that with other people? So let's go and tell others about our hope in Jesus, the compassionate and perfect prophet, the compassionate and forgiving God. Let's pray.